This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to another episode of The Stateless Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, and I'm pleased to be with you. We are pursuing liberty beyond borders. That's international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And the show has a sponsor. It's AMTG Solutions. That's amtgs.com for digital media and web development services, amtgs.com. And today's show is a special one because I have a, a co-host with me. I've been hoping to get her on for a, a while now. You can read more about her on, well, any, any outlet through the Stateless Man, basically, the email update or on the Facebook page. I've just posted a note from her or an example of, what, of her work. Her name is Rachel Mills. That's rachelmills.com, and she produces the Full Frontal Liberty podcast. So, Rachel, welcome to the Stateless Man. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited. Yeah, no, I'm really <laughs> pleased too. So it's going to be a great two hours ahead. And, mate, we have a ton of interesting guests coming on. And last week, the feature article on thestatelessman.com was revealed the ugly side of polygamous communities in North America. And, yeah, it did reveal some <clears throat> some very unsavory things that go on in polygamous communities, particularly in the southwest of the United States, Arizona, Utah areas. But during the week, I got some criticism that I was lopsided in how I presented that and that I interviewed a lady who helps people escape from these communities and helps them get into regular life and then a lady who had personally been in a polygamous community and thought very poorly of it and managed to get out. Now, the descriptions that I had were so negative, I didn't really see a need to justify it or defend it. But we, I did hear from people who were disappointed that and that they don't, as so long as it is voluntary, uh, they're not concerned about it. Particularly live and live, live and let live people would say that polygamy, so long as, as it is voluntary, is not a problem. And so today we have a guest who has written on this issue and is le- leads a group called Principal Voices, which promotes the polygamous lifestyle. Her name is Anne Wild. She's also written a book on this one. Let me bring that one up. The book is a, uh, well, I'm going to, that's going to take me a second, but so first of all, let's just bring Ann Wild on to the Stateless Man. Thanks for giving us, giving us your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. Right. And so the question to many people is how, well, let's back up because I've got lots of questions for you. This is a fascinating topic and particularly as it relates to contemporary Mormonism, but why did you start Principal Voices and uh, work with it and what is your hope? What is your goal? Well, we started Principal Voices, which is really an educational advocacy group. We're not trying to convert people to the lifestyle of plural marriage, but we wanted people to understand us better. And the reason we started, uh, well, we wrote our book in December of 2000 called Voices in Harmony, Contemporary Women Celebrate Plural Marriage. And the reason we decided that this book was necessary is because it seemed like the media and the Utah State Attorney General's Office and surrounding states, the only stories that they had heard came from women who this principle didn't work for. And they had heard the negative side of it. They uh, heard the stereotypes and the myths that um, a lot of people have heard. And we wanted to 
explain the fact that there's another side to the picture and that there are hundreds, thousands of women that have freely chosen this lifestyle and it works for them. And so we thought we've got to get that information out there or people are going to continue to think that we're um, weirdos, lawbreakers, uh, welfare fraud, and all those other myths that are out there. And we wanted to set the record straight that that isn't con- um, typical of the people that live plural marriage today. Look, look yeah, jump I, out in there, right? Sir. I have a question. I have a question. Um, now, my whole thing is... Um, I, I'm in favor of anyone living whatever lifestyle they want to, as long as they're consenting adults in the matter. So, what's your opinion on how how young is too young for for a woman to to choose this? Well, we believe in upholding the laws of the state and the nation in every other way possible, except in the case of plural marriage. And in Utah, that's a felony, unfortunately. We would like to see that changed. We would like to see polygamy decriminalized, which means you just remove the criminal penalty from it. We are not necessarily in favor of legalizing plural marriage or polygamy, because that would mean that we'd have to get a legal marriage license for each of our marriages. At the present time, most of their families have one legal marriage with the first wife. The rest of them are what we call priesthood sealings or religious commitment sealings. And, well, as um, far as laws concerned, um, they're they're just um, live-in girlfriends, cohabitants. Well, that isn't the way we look at it at all because this is a strongly held religious belief that we have. It's biblical, and that's where we derive that. No, actually, I wanted to to say that that actually is really good to hear that you don't actually want to get marriage licenses, which is very ironic given the state of affairs today that many people are pushing. uh Yeah, we have, you know, some things in common, naturally, but that is a big difference between the gays and the polygamists is that we do not want legal recognition of our marriages because we feel since this is a spiritual and a religious belief, we're Why doing it for those reasons. Right. Okay, yeah. So wh- why does the first wife get married then in the legal sense? Well, and sometimes they don't, but usually they do. It's just, uh, I guess, traditional. Um, when I was married, I uh, was married in monogamy for nine years. We had a legal marriage, and during that time I realized that there had been a lot of changes in the mainstream LDS church. And then my second marriage, I was the second wife, and that was not a legal marriage. He already had one, and so uh, it was just a priesthood ceiling. Sure. I wonder if it would remove the the legal problem if no one had a marriage license. Would would that sort of fix it, the problem? No, it wouldn't make any difference because they're not breaking any laws by the first monogamous marriage being a legal marriage. Uh, it's just that the bigamy enters in if you get more than one legal marriage license. Sure. What is bigamy? Bigamy is is when you are married to more than one person without the other person knowing. I see. Usually, well, I, or if there's fraud involved, right? Uh, and that's usually the way it's defined: as if the first wife doesn't know, and the man goes out and takes another legal wife. Consider bigamy. Yeah. Right. Well, we are speaking with Anne Wild, and she's the co-author of Voices in Harmony: Contemporary Women Celebrate Plural Marriage. And she's also one of the founders of, with PrincipalVoices.org, and she is defending the practice of polygamy and, or promoting it. Now, if you have a question for her, call in. It's one eight 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 seven four one seven four seven two, 
And we will be right back. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. Your website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Services are professional, affordable, and efficient. Visit their website at amtgs.com or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. This is the Stateless Man Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, and I've got Rachel Mills here. RachelMills.com is her website. Hello. When we are discussing <laughs> polygamous communities or polygamous relationships, because I wrote an article which was very critical of these communities, and there are some, just some ghastly things that do occur, particularly associated with the um, Fundamentalist Church of the Latter-day Saints, one sect within Fundamentalist Mormonism. If you haven't seen that article, you can you can find it on thestatelessman.com. Just go to that site and scroll down. You'll see it. It was the feature article last week. Now, there are so many questions to get to. One thing before I hand it over to Rachel, I just wanted to ask Anne Wild of Principal Voices, and I actually should give us some background. That, As she noted, she was in a polygamous marriage for, I think, 33 years or a long period of time. Now, do you agree with us then that the activities of the Fundamentalist Church of the Latter-day Saints under the power of Warren Jeffs are very problematic or concerning? Absolutely, and the problem is that people don't get the distinction between the FLDS Church under Warren Jeffs and the other thousands of fundamentalist Mormons that live separate from that. Now, we do have some things in common. It's kind of like the American Indian tribes. You know, they're all American Indians, but they're in tribes. And we have a diverse culture in that there are several groups, FLDS being one of them. And then there are also what we call independent fundamentalist Mormons who do not belong to any organized group. And people frequently get that all mixed up and think that we're all like uh, the Warren Jeffs group, and that is absolutely not true. They have some practices that the rest of us do not condone. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, we do not believe in the underage marriages and the strong dictatorial leadership and so forth, some of the practices that they've had. And so we make every effort to make that distinction so people don't get us confused. Right. And Rachel, do you want to jump in there? I I would actually say um, the media is maybe more on your side these days than ever before with the hit TV shows Big Love on HBO and and also uh, Sister Wives. Sister Wives? I haven't seen these. Uh Oh, yeah, well, and we're glad for that because, you know, something like this is a matter of education. And people that don't know much about this culture or lifestyle are very prone to believe in the stereotypes and myths because they know no other information. So that's why we decided to come out about 12, 13 years ago and present the other side of the picture. There are a lot of happy families in this lifestyle that have freely chosen it as adults, and that's the key, is that we don't think anybody ought to be forced or commanded to live this lifestyle or have their spouse, future spouse, chosen for them. We feel like this is a free agency issue that they ought to be able to choose as adults who they want to marry. I gotcha. Why do you think then that 
so few non-fundamentalist Mormons engage in plural marriages. Non-fundamentalist Mormons? We Right now, it seems almost... Yeah, like, why is it only Mormons? Yeah, I mean, there are some, I guess, Muslims who practice it in the United States, right. but North America, but... And, yeah? And this is why uh, we, we base it on biblical um, doctrine and history. And I think uh, over, uh, what is it, two-thirds of the countries in the world, it's not against the law to have more than one wife. I know, I know, it is, yeah. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's tons of it. Right. Well, uh, in America, and I'm not being derogatory at all about America, but it's just that the chosen, uh, predominant marriage lifestyle is monogamous. And that, of course, happened in the days of the Romans and the uh, Sabine women and all that. I won't need to go into that. But it is traditional and it is legal in the United States to just have the one wife. We would like the opportunity to form our families as adults as we see fit. Well, do you do you support then the work of groups like holding out help? I mean, you like you said, you Absolutely. agree that Absolutely. There are I know problems. Tanya Tool very well, and I might point out too. I realize that she is dealing with those that are having a tough time living the lifestyle, and so many of them are leaving the family, the group, or even the lifestyle. But she is also there to help those that are having trouble but want to remain in a polygamous relationship. Um, we have talked to her right from the beginning when she first organized Holding Out Help that she's going to be dealing with those that have uh, unhappy and maybe bitter experiences, but that's not typical. And she knows the distinction of that. And, uh, and in, on your program, I think she didn't have a chance to probably say, you know, that there's still plenty of people that live it as a happy family. Right. She did make a statement on the site clarifying her position. So if you let me let me just read that one quickly. She said an update. Although quote, although you have heard the worst of the worst, it does not mean that all people from this culture are bad. Many are dear friends of mine. The abuse from the top is what needs to end. And I guess in your case, and you are an independent fundamentalist woman, so you know you don't really have a top, so to speak. They, these people are sincere and truly believe their prophets hear from God and that they need to do exactly what they are told, or they will be destroyed. What do you say to people like most prominently Mitt Romney who say that Mormonism has nothing to do with plural marriages or polygamy? Do you think that's just misleading to people? Well, he is talking about what we call the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and true. They do not, since the turn of the 20th century, believe in plural marriage, whether it's the belief or the practice. And so naturally, as an active member of the LDS Church, he's not going to speak in favor of this lifestyle. However, he does have polygamous ancestors. Um, and a lot of the people that live it today do have polygamous ancestors that were uh, living in the days of the Church when it was an accepted doctrine. But, of course, now, over 100 years, it has not been. And we live it separate from the LDS Church. Okay, we need to get a little bit personal with you, though. We need to ask about your experience. I'm curious. So okay. which, which, which wife in your marriage were you? Were you first, second? How many were there? Well, briefly, first of all, I was born and raised in the LDS Church, and I went to BYU, graduated with honors, married in the temple a year later. Uh, was It was a very rocky marriage for nine years. During that time, we realized that there have been a lot of changes made in doctrines and teachings of the LDS Church, and one of those is plural marriage. It's only mm -hmm. one. There are many, many changes that have taken place that we feel are very significant. Uh, so a year after my divorce, I became the second wife in a plural family, or it was then a plural family, and there were a few wives after me. We never say publicly how many. 
I lived as a second wife very, very happy in the lifestyle for 33 years. My husband died 10 years ago, and uh, I have still continued on being an advocate for the lifestyle because I could see the advantages, not only religiously but practically. It, in my estimation, you have the best of both worlds. Did the family break up after yeah, the husband died? After that point, do you go your own ways? I didn't understand the question. After the husband dies, do, do the sister wives go their own way, or do you still live together? Uh, well, you... most of them have passed away. Uh, there's only one other one uh, so... living now, and uh, we still keep in touch. She's living with her oldest daughter, and, um, you know, we still get along just fine. Hmm. Right. Are you Are you seeing more mainstream Mormon people defecting and coming to the polygamous lifestyle? I don't know if I'd say more. There is... There are always some that are researchers, and they realize the difference in the teachings of the early church as compared to what's being taught today. Uh, mm -hmm. Some, they just justify it and remain members of the church. Others, it bothers them to the point where they feel like they can no longer maintain their membership. Um, but there's always been some of those kind of people. I just, I don't think polygamy is the problem. I, I think. What is the problem? I, I, I think the problem is when children are, are, are very young girls are forced into this. Absolutely. And, I agree. And, and then when they're not able to get out, when the situation becomes abusive, I think the problem is in these communities where men have 20 wives, what happens to all of the, the young men. Right, well, we're actually approaching the next break, oh, so I've just got to say that, <laughs> Anne, I know that there's much more we could say. I appreciate you coming on the show, and I, I thank you for sharing your perspective, okay? Yes. Okay, so uh, I'll say goodbye then, and thank you for the opportunity to share this information. So thank pleasure you so to speak much. with you, okay? Yeah. So her, her website is principalvoices.org. And Anne Wilde is the co-author of the book, Voices in Harmony, Contemporary Women Celebrate Plural Marriage. You can see it on the Facebook page of The Stateless Man. Stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. This is The Stateless Man broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, with Rachel Mills. Hello. And we, we're, we're getting a, a, our next guest on to discuss the post-Chavez scenario in Latin America, but I think Rachel just had some thoughts on that interview discussing polygamous marriage as to what happens to the men, I think. That was the big question. Oh, well, I, first of all, I want to say I bet she's just breathing a huge sigh of relief that we didn't have time enough to ask her about the bedroom arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> Not, oh, you kill not me. enough time to go there. <laughs> I was, yeah, because I've heard that they have sort of in the back they have multiple little houses that well, the man that, kind of That's goes the way with. it's portrayed on TV. But you sort of wonder <laughs> is that you know, like in the in the Dick Van Dyke show or whatever, when they had the the separate twin beds for the married couples, kind of wink, wink, you know, like I don't know. It 50s. seems like you'd get pretty cozy after living in such close proximity. <laughs> hey, I don't care what they do. <laughs> but inquiring minds wanted to know. I think the, con the concern many of us had is that, yeah, the coercion and just very dogmatic, almost mind control that's involved with many of the communities. But yeah. she actually, the, our guest actually agreed that that is a problem, particularly when it's when we were talking about the fundamentalist Church of the Latter-day Saints, which 
has as its head Warren Jeffs, who's in prison for, I think, some forms of, um, what is it when you take advantage of young people? It's, um. Rape? Okay. <laughs> Pe- pedoph- pedophilia? Pedophilia, right. Yeah. Maybe statutory rape. Anyway, so, but uh. we have a, a lovely guest on next. Uh, her name is Elena Ball, and we're going to be discussing who Chavez was and what his passing means for both Venezuela and Latin America in a broader sense. Now, if you've not read Elena Ball's article, it is on thestatelessman.com. Go, go to that site. You can ch- check it out. It's titled, Chavez is officially dead because we don't really know when he died. You know, he was kept in hiding, basically. Does it matter? And this has generated plenty of great traffic. I'm going to post a link to this on the Stateless Man Facebook page. So, Elena, I know we called on you a short notice, but I'm really pleased you could come and speak with us. Hi, Fergus. Thank you for having me. So, in, in your article, which I think very highly of, you said that, quote, as someone who grew up experiencing the gradual destruction of a country and its institutions, I can tell you one thing. It was all a show. What do you mean, all a show? Uh, right. Well, the article really came about because um, people can kept asking me, um, what does it mean? Is he, is he dead and does it matter? And so um, what I kept seeing in, in the press was usually um, people um, talking about Chavez as a, as a legitimate, democratically elected president in a democratic country. And as someone, I guess, who had experienced inside the country what um, his whole term was like, it, it was usually just a charade, um, just a sort of facade, um, holding elections, referendums, etc. Um, but it wasn't really, it was a, an authoritarian regime where he gradually concentrated power in, in the executive, and it wasn't really a democracy. Right. And I will say, Elena, that just from reading your article and getting a better sense of the situation, that it's, it's very different from what we might imagine. And one example that I was speaking about with Rachel before we went on the air was that there is this day-long talk show every week, apparently, in, in Venezuela called Allo Presidente. Tell people about that, if you don't mind. Right, yes. Um, so part of Chavez's appeal was that he was a great communicator, and, and he knew this, and he knew also how to manipulate the media to um, basically the, front, the content of the media and the newspapers was all very um, strategically strategically placed, um, and Allo Presidente was just a way for him to reach the population because it was in uh, what they called Cadena, which was a national broadcast, like you would switch channels and there would always be... All the channels would be on. on. Yes. Great. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was not very democratic, but he would do this in, um, every single Sunday, and he would go on for hours and hours on the show. He would sing, he would pray, he would talk... I'm- Aren't people going to church, though, all Sunday? <laughs> yes, maybe. But I, even church only lasts an hour. You can go to church and come back, and he'll still be on TV. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he would, and he would do official official changes of ministers and official uh, th- declarations he would do on the show whenever he wanted. Like, he would be speaking about some not... Yep. No, because, Elena, you were saying that, yeah, he would fire and hire ministers on this kind of like game show or talk show that he just did off the cuff. Right. How, how much planning went into this where he just, he just kind of felt like, I think I'm going to fire you today? <laughs> well, I can't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure some things were strategic and he knew what he was going to say beforehand. But other things, like if someone would stand up um, and say, 
Um, we haven't gotten uh, the, the housing we were promised or we haven't done this, which was very rare because uh, most people feared him. Um, wow. He was yeah. going to fire that minister who was in charge of putting those houses there when it really wasn't his fault, but he would do it anyway so that he wouldn't look bad. The minister, it was the minister's fault. So Mm-mm-mm. that's what his whole strategy was about. Right, and you said that even this prominent correspondent of the, with The Guardian who actually also had an article in the New York Times recently, even he was basically duped by Chavez to a large degree. Do you want to comment upon the sort of uh, demagogic, demagogic power that he had over even foreign journalists? Well, I think um, Roy Carroll, who was a journalist in The, in the Guardian, was actually very insightful. I think he, he really did get um, that it was a show. But I think mm. um, he held off from calling him a dictator which um, in, in a classical sense, in what you see in history books and what you've seen from Fidel and other dictators in the past, he, he obviously didn't display. But um, what I was saying was that it was sort of a new, a modern dictatorship that he created sort of a, as an opportunistic um, method of dictatorship because he would keep some of the, some of, like that he wouldn't, he wouldn't completely abolish private property. He wouldn't have um, death squads in, in public, um, things like that, that other dictators and communist dictators might have done. Um, but right. he, I would still have called him a dictator. He was definitely not uh, a Democrat. <laughs> and and, and uh, there's an article that I've, I've posted on the Stateless Man Facebook page, which I think is worth a read. It's titled, 10 Reasons Why I Will Not Miss Chavez. And he says, yeah, rest in peace, Chavez. I, I didn't agree with most of your policies and politics, and but I, I don't rejoice your death, and I do not do respect the death the, and the pain of to family and, and supporters. But basically, he just went through a list of 10 things that Chavez did to to just sort of undermine all the, the perception that many people, the favorable perception that many people gave him. And one of these, one of the list is this hypocrisy regarding colonialism, that he was very, or imperialism, he was very anti-United States influence in Venezuela and elsewhere in Latin America, particularly Colombia, I guess. And that's why he was supporting the FARC and other paramilitary groups in Colombia. But he said, well, ironically, he didn't seem to have a problem with Russians or Cubans or Chinese coming into Venezuela. And they were, they were even more, you could say, interventionist or controlling than the, than the United States would have been. Yeah, no, he was, I think he was definitely hypercritical about that. And he also needed the United States. I mean, they're, they're our number one customer for oil. But, um, but yes, definitely. And I think he just he used them as a typical regime that needs an outside enemy. And so mm. that's the perfect, the perfect, um, excuse, I guess. And as history sort of lets, lends itself to calling them imperialist and, and such. But, um, he definitely just used it to enlarge his own image around the world, like with his allies, as well as inside Venezuela, and to have some sort of foreign enemy. Right. Uh, well, we're, we're speaking with Elena Ball, and she has has written an article, Chavez is officially dead, does it matter? We're going to get on to the does it matter bit after the break, and I'm joined by lovely Rachel Mills of rachelmills.com and the Full Frontal Liberty podcast. So you don't want to miss any more of this. This is The Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network.
We are back with the stateless man. And uh, Rachel Mills is co-hosting with me today. It's great to be back pursuing liberty beyond borders. And we have a special guest, Elena Ball, author of an article, Chavez is officially dead, does it matter, on thestatelessman.com. And she was just explaining the really bizarre scenario of his, the, the way he ran his his government or, or leadership in in Venezuela. And the you might call him, I'm not sure what you kind of clown clown antics almost, but very vicious <laughs> antics that basically gave him sway. And, he, and she, her, her primary concern was that many people still believe that Chavez was somehow a legitimate democratic leader. And she says that's just a show and that's not true at all. And maybe the first time he got elected, because he actually engaged in a coup back in the early 90s, and then when he got first got elected, which I think was maybe 2003, I'm not sure, but a, a few while ago now, when that first... Ninety ninety nine, yes. So he he probably was elected relatively legitimately the first time, but then after that he used the power he gained to uh, really consolidate and nationalize many industries. Do you want to comment on that, Elena? Yeah, sure. No, definitely. The first um, he ran in ninety eight, and then nineteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine, he did win uh, the majority of the vote um, fairly. Um, the thing is, after that, he, as you said, he was. Um, concentrating power, not just um, nationalizing um, companies and um, and taking away private property, but he was also sort of centralizing political power in, in terms that the judicial, um, like all the branches of government, uh, responded to him. He started uh, the institution of the military was pretty much under his control as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the po- the police forces in Caracas, which were very much a a presence, a military presence, um, and the National Guard. Um, do you remember off the top of your head? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, go, go right, Cheryl. Um, do you remember off the off the top of your head roughly what was his um, popular vote in in '98 when he won? Right. Um, I'm just. I don't remember, but um, I was it something like when the majority was. Yeah. What was uh, it? Close to 50 percent, or closer to like 90 percent? No, it was definitely not 90 percent. Um, okay. The thing is, um, he sure. he was sort of the the, um, the underdog in those elections, and he sort of emerged um, as as the mm-hmm. because of his dexterity as a politician and and speaking to the public and and basically pop, populist and demagoguery uh, when he ran his campaign, promising all these things that he was going to do. Um, he he gradually became sort of the front runner uh, in the elections, but he he definitely didn't win by a ninety percent. Um, it was more close to fifty, I think, if I'm I remember correctly, but I don't remember the exact number. I guess it's after they consolidate power and can control the elections better that dictators right, I know. Get, get quite that popular. So <laughs> well, then they change 90%. change the constitution, so there's no right. there's no term limit, for example. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so, but many, and many people have fled Venezuela since that time. Do you want to uh, describe the exodus that has occurred? Mm. Well, yes, um, there has been an, an exodus because apart from the fact that you're living under a sort of modern dictatorship, the, uh, the crime has just completely been incre- uh, soaring exponentially uh, throughout mm. the 14 years that he was in power. Um, really, crime has gone up. <laughs> Sorry. No, but I'm 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 totally serious. That should be the one benefit of of an of a iron police, fisted, of a police state. Yeah, of a police state. <laughs> there no. shouldn't be so much crime. <laughs> he can't do that. 
No, I don't think he can't. The thing is, like, um, he basically decimated the institutions of the police force because he was afraid of a coup. Um, Mm. And he created this sort of Bolivarian circles that he calls, which were community um, circles. Basically, I think to um, put in his his ideology uh, into the barrios and into the population. Um, but he sort of basically lost control of, of, uh, I mean, without any police, the crime obviously increases and no, there were no new hirings. I mean, I think the number of police is still the same, uh, or even less than before. Then the number of jails is, hasn't gone up since, well, since even before he was president. And they've just become a sort of really anarchic jails. Like, I mean, I think the prisoners are the ones to have control of the jails um, and things like that. So, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm sure on gun control, <laughs> he doesn't like an armed populace either, so you can't defend yourself. So, yeah. Crime yeah what is this? Yeah, what are the, are the gun control laws there? Yeah. No, no, I think it's been kind of the opposite. He has armed this sort of Bolivarian circles, so they have this sort of... Oh, his friends. So his goals are all exactly. armed? He armed his friends, but now it's become sort of uh, it's gone out of his hands because everyone is armed to their teeth and uh, up to their teeth, and and it's become sort of like gangs of of uh, of this like armed thugs controlling different neighborhoods in the cities. So um, no, the crime and and we're probably one of the highest highest uh, violent uh, murder rates in the in the world. I think. I think you guys right are now. taking on Honduras to get right up there. Yeah, exactly. And and these are the official. Figures, which, as we all know, in um, in authoritarian regimes, are sort of very questionable. Sure, sure. <laughs> now, you also mentioned to me that a lot of the businesses have fled as well. So, if you just want to get a flight to Venezuela, you probably pay the same as much as, as if you're going to fly away to New Zealand. What has happened to to international businesses? Well, yeah, the flight situation was also due because uh, because due to the fact that you didn't want to. Um, Go along with international flight regulations, and so the I think there's only a Venezuelan airline and American airlines flying in and out. But the businesses, yeah, I mean it's it's a very unstable political and situation in the country. So uh, to make big investments in in inside the country doesn't really make sense. And he's been nationalizing left and right. Come on, Elena, haven't women's women's rights improved under Chavez? <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, he kept he kept calling himself a feminist, and that he loved women and blah blah blah. Oh, but oh. at the same time, I think he was allegedly beating his wife. And so, yeah, yeah, they, they got divorced. I think I'm not I'm not sure if they're officially divorced, but that was the allegations that he was beating her. So he was beating his wife. Yeah, I say that doesn't surprise me, but I guess it is just allegations. <laughs> we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. <laughs> Now, one of the images which I play, which is in your article, is of people kind of celebrating, pulling down the statue of a dictator, and then another dictator coming up right behind him. Is that what's ha- is right. that is that what is happening right now? Well, I think, um, as I mentioned, I think it's Chavismo, they call it, um, has been institutionalized, and in that they his successors have received very detailed instructions as to how to proceed after he is gone. But they also have the the instructions coming from Cuba, who mm. has been very influential in getting Chavez to where he was, um, the uh, the Castro brothers. Um, but at the same time, um, 
I think Chavez is, is obviously very a hard person to replace just because he was he had he was um, a good a brilliant communicator um, and a good political strategist as well. So I don't think Maduro, who he who he named as his successor, um, will have the same effect. But he he will definitely try uh, to continue the Chavez legacy. Rachel, do you have a comment? I heard that his body was going to be on permanent display, kind Whoa, of like yeah. Lenin. Len- Lenin's, Lenin's still in, on display in Russia. You can go <laughs> look at his cadaver. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. uh, Lenin, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, because I heard that too. Yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And I think, I mean, that's just showing you that the sort of things that they're going to they're gonna be doing now that, that he's gone. I mean, the first thing, one of the first things they announced before, before announcing his death was that, um, that, that the, the cancer was sort of inoculated by someone in the United States or something like that. It was caused by, by foreign right. enemies, I think is what they said. Um, and then in the swearing in of um, Maduro as the as interim president, they were all wearing sort of... Um, the uh, yellow, yellow, blue, and red um, bandanas on their arms, um, uh, mm. like you know, like they like they did when they were doing the coup in '92, um, and then they were everyone was sort of putting their fists in the air and and yelling these um, slogans. So I mean, Commun- I think they're, they're sort of radicalizing. Sorry, shouting communist slogans at what at the new yeah, president. Uh, not necessarily communist, but, you know, shouting support for Maduro, but in sort of this very um, rehearsed type of very, so me- very... So meet the boss, same as the old boss kind so, of thing. Well, one thing yeah. that, that scares me a little bit, Elena, is that after he passed away, his supporters just felt like, well, we've got a license to go and smash things up and steal things. How does that fit into his socialism for the 21st century? Um, well, I think that was just, I mean, I don't, I don't really know how strategically that plays out, but I think it was more of um, to keep people in fear of what was go- what was coming next and keeping them at home. Um, I don't think they continued. Um, I think that that was stopped. But I mean, I think that's been sort of a normal happening in our, throughout our history. Um, but yeah, that's sort of a, a way that they used to to inculcate fear into people. Well, yeah, Elena, we we are in the last minute of the hour, so we're going to have to let you go. But I I will say, yeah, people need to read her article on thestatelessman.com. dot com. It's very well written, and she's got a great personal story. Uh, so, but we'll be continuing this discussion after the news break. So, uh, stay with us with Rachel Mills and Fergus Hodgson from Raleigh, North Carolina, and this is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome to the Stateless Man, pursuing liberty beyond borders, uh, sponsored by AMTG Solutions. That's AMTGS.com for your digital media and web development needs. Check them out, AMTGS.com. And we just finished chatting with Elena Ball, author of the article, on uh, thestatelessman.com regarding Chavez and what his passing means. And 
to a large degree, her concern is that basically it doesn't it doesn't mean so much because his followers have grown to such uh, such a level of power or influence, and they're so eager to continue that one would have a very hard time turning that around. Although she did mention, and this is what I think the Wall Street Journal wrote as well, that oh man, I've forgotten his name now, but the his replacement is not such a demagogue. He's not so. Thinking of Chavez as pretty with words is hard for me to comprehend, but apparently he's <laughs> apparently he has some persuasive power. Well, he must. Yeah. Have. And and considering that he does these day long talk shows, Allo Presidente, he must have some charisma. I would that's not want. Like to. that's like a filler buster every day. Yes, exactly. Except probably sitting down. I'm sure he was able to sit down and take. Apparently a he danced break. as well. He was really flamboyant with it. That's Dancer? that's yeah. I yeah. respect that. I. <laughs> No, like because when I when I was in Ecuador too, the president there, Rafael Correa, he would have these national broadcasts too that would be on all the channels, mm-hmm. and it just creeps me out. It seems like in some bizarre movie, but it, that is the way it is. Yeah, I mean, so as she was saying, every channel will be running good old Chavez on a Sunday, and I would be getting myself away from a television pretty quick. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, talk about cult of personality. I mean. If if you can swing that, that's pretty powerful. Right, it scares me. These people have such such power of yeah. influence, and I don't really know why people um, buy into it, but they do apparently, and it's just something that I'm, I'm wary of. And Venezuela is not somewhere I'm looking to move to because, as mm-hmm. Elena also noted, the crime there is just uh, has just skyrocketed in recent times. And she says that even the official statistics have admitted that, and she said that the reality is probably much worse because the police are hardly prosecuting or or actually noting down most of the crimes. Well, yeah, that seems to make sense because if only Chavez's friends are armed and his, you know, the people he's unsure of are not, you've you've got a tremendous imbalance and if Who wants to report a crime to your enemy? Well, but if you know where someone stands politically, they're, you know, they're potentially a, a sitting duck. Actually, and- that's what she was saying too that even on his talk show or whatever People did not want to criticize him for fear that sure. they, would, they would suffer retaliation. Here in America, people just we just speak our minds and don't seem to care. But yeah, <laughs> except, so far, <laughs> except at the White House press conferences. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, access is important to reporters, so you no, know, that, that's their lifeblood. I'm just saying, I know many people like our friend Chuck Suter of ConstitutionalWar.org. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can't do anything. That guy will just speak his mind no matter what. <laughs> So, Chuck, if you listen, I, I love your site, constitutionalwar.org. You do great work. But I wanted to, I wanted to get more of a Rachel's story. She, oh. yeah, it's, it's rachelmills.com. And I, I posted one link to her, link to her site on the Stateless Man Facebook page, uh, the Full Frontal Liberty podcast and the latest episode, episode four, where she has an, a mock interview with Obama. You should check it out. And you can just, yeah, you can click right through Rachel Mills and the Rachel is, C-H-E-L, there's no A in there, Mills, M-I-L-L-S dot com, which redirects to rachelmillsblog.wordpress.com. Now, you were the press secretary for Ron Paul? Yes, I worked on Capitol Hill for five years. Five years? Yep. Was there a, is the press secretary the number one person or lady in the communications? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I, I don't, I don't know how these deal. things work. <laughs> Well, I, I reported to the chief of staff and also to to Ron Paul himself. So that's great. It was very cool. It was it was my dream job. So for five years, but now you have children. You moved back to North Carolina. 
Yes, I have a seven-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Bless my heart. What <laughs> Both <is> boys. <laughs> are there any good stories you can share with us from that time in D.C., the five years? Oh, so many. Um, How was it different from what you might have expected? Because uh, from someone who yeah, is a believer in liberty and actually decided to engage in the political process. Well, I, I, I remember. Would you do it again? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, okay. Of course. From an international perspective, I I was just thinking the other day about um yeah. this this great story. I remember from uh, when I was going with uh, Dr. Paul to an interview. Mm. Um, it wasn't too far from the Capitol, but uh, for some reason we had just agreed to take a cab over there. And um, the the cab driver, I forget what nationality. I think he was some um, Middle Eastern. Okay. Descent. And he was obviously very new to the area, and uh, his English was not so good. He didn't know the roads very well, so we had to sort of. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Taxi it, driver doesn't know the roads. Problem. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, it was it was kind of scary because we were going to an interview, and um, anyone who knows Dr. Paul knows that his biggest pet peeve is he hates 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 to be late to Whoa. anything. Yes. And on on the few occasions, you know, maybe once or twice in five years, I was you know maybe a couple minutes late. Like uh, Rachel. a couple minutes late. I I, I, got, I, I don't got believe the dirtiest okay, look. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so I was sweating bullets, thinking that he's going to be really in a bad mood when we when we get out of the, mm. out of the taxi cab, um, because he he caused us some delay, and you know potentially some frustration. So sure. I, I I was a little nervous, but no, actually we got out of the cab and and he just he just shook his head. He's like. Man, I don't know how they do it. You know, how do you how do you find the courage to come to a new culture and a new language? And he, he was just so admiring of of this this cab driver that was in this situation. Sure. You know, where where he was under a lot of pressure. You know, and he but had still this pulled, job, but still pulled through. Yeah. Yes. He, I mean, he got us there, and ultimately we left early enough that we were there on time, mm. so that wasn't a problem. But. You know, I I just I I admired him so much just at that moment for for you know acknowledging the courage that it took to go to a new country. Sure. And now you've started the Full Frontal Liberty podcast. Yeah, it's it's pretty new. I I've only uh, got four episodes now, but yeah, I'm 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 hoping to to see where it goes and keep improving it and have a little fun. Right. It was fun. I mean, basically, yeah. Like I said, people should just check out the the podcast that I posted. Uh, which has her doing an interview with Obama and yeah, I discovered sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> I, How does one pick out all those sound bites like that? Oh, just I, I just I, I had the best time actually. I discovered how easy it is to edit them in, and my, my um, intro music is is not always going to be a minute and a half. I was just having way too much fun with sound clips and. Um, yeah, I, I will calm down. I, I have <laughs> edited it down to about 30 seconds, but yeah, I, I had a good time with that. Right on. So we're, yeah, we're speaking with Rachel Mills, co-hosting the show with me today. Her website is rachelmills.com. And we'll do this discussion after the break. This is The Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. This is The Sailor's Man with Fergus Hodgson and Rachel Mills broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina. And this this half hour, we actually had Yale Osofsky planned. He was the author of the article, uh, When Everyone Around You Is What Against Freedom. What was the title of that article? 
from wants, the, wants to restrict freedom? Is that what it was? Yeah, when everyone, everyone around you wants to restrict freedom, it's the, the feature article of, of this week's Stateless Man update, and it's on the statelessman.com. When everyone around you wants to yeah, restrict yeah. freedom, how does one live in an age of force? He also was at the European Students for Liberty Conference uh, this week, but just this morning he sent me a message saying that he couldn't make the show because he's just moved to Austria and there were just complications with transport and getting himself set up there. So we're going to see if we can have him on next week. But in the meantime, yeah, check out that article, and I, I will seek to get an update from the European Students for Liberty conference and an article from him about that because Students for Liberty is just an incredible organization, a great networking opportunity, and they're just booming. They're growing all across the United States, different chapters, and internationally, South America, <coughs> Africa, Europe, and maybe even in New Zealand at some point. I know there was a guy from New Zealand at last year's event, and uh, well, I'll keep tabs on that. But... The the other another event that was on this weekend was the Voice and Exit Conference in Austin, Texas, and the one of the organizers is uh, Max Borders. He is the author of the book Super Wealth, Super Wealth, and I think it's why we should worry less about the gap between the rich and the poor. And he's he's also the editor of the Freeman, a magazine uh, which the Foundation for Economic Education publishes. So, uh, Max, you're on early. I'm glad to, I'm glad to have, have plenty of time to chat about this with you. So thanks for coming on The Stateless Man. I'm happy to be here. Right on, hey. Max. How, tell us, how was the Voice and Exit conference? Was it a success? Plenty of people came out. Oh, let me tell you, I think I've created a monster. What do you I mean? really do. Well, <clears throat> have you ever heard of the expression, you're a victim of your own success? Of course. Um, <laughs> people are already asking me, when's the next one? Let's, huh. What are you going to do next year? And, uh, and I'm, I still haven't slept enough after after all the work I put into this one. So absolutely success. We had uh, more people than we ever hoped for uh, come out, especially at the last minute. We got a, a ton of people show up. And and um, <clears throat> there was not only a, a happy hour beforehand where people could network, but the, the presentations themselves, uh, voice and exit uh, for your listeners who – I'm right. probably not familiar with it. We basically did a TED style knockoff, and this is right happens to be right at the same time as South by Southwest Interactive Conference here in Austin. And mm-hmm. what we were able to do was um, was film some really great talks by some really wonderful, uh, open minded, mostly free market thinkers, and um, and we're going to be able to aggregate those videos and share them online, much as TED does. So we like the model, but the, in the theme in the in the theme of the conference, there is a, an element of criticized by creating. We don't believe Ted does enough um, enough talks on uh, libertarian themes, and we wanted to do that. It's not a completely libertarian conference. We have lots of different voices, but there is certainly a strand of that. The main the main idea behind Voice and Exit is <clears throat> certainly freeing up opportunities for for um, human flourishing. And uh, that certainly showed this weekend. So I, I encourage your listeners to look out for those videos and for next year's event. Yeah, Max, when will those videos become available? Um, well, that that depends on basically on my partner, Seth Blaustein. Seth is a, a incredibly talented uh, video producer, and it's now on his shoulders. So I would imagine in probably the next 30 to 40 days, Okay, right. Well, because I will follow those closely, and just as a bit of background, I did in within my this week's uh, email update or newsletter, 
I did include a link to the video explanation uh, regarding what Voice Nexit is. And basically the way that we have different ideas for the world we want to live in. And the the tagline was to a world, I think, beyond coercion or something like that. Let me bring that one up. Yeah, right. innovating, innovating beyond coercion. That's right. Right. And so, but the, the idea is that there are different ways to achieve change we want. And one voice means persuasion. That means actually engaging in discussion, education. The other is saying, look, I'll just vote with my feet and go somewhere else. And both of these are peaceful, you know, ethical, whatever you want to say, just good ways of bringing about change. So Max and his um, colleague brought together 13 people to speak about how one can do this. And, yeah, the title was Innovating for a Non-Coercive World. Now, do you want to touch upon some of the key elements that you, or key themes that, that arose during this event? I think we had one of the biggest things was competitive governance. And, in fact, the last time I was on your show, I talked a bit about the research I'd done for the Seasteading Institute. Yes. What we found with Voice and Exit was that theme kept popping up. Of course, that was partially by design. Uh, some of the uh, speakers I invited were um, Max Marty from Blue Seed, who is doing a, um, who's doing a Googleplex of the Sea uh, offshore in Silic- from Silicon Valley in the Pacific Ocean. What, is, he wants to- what is the status of Blue Seed? Because from memory, they were supposed to be starting at the end of this year. At uh, the end of uh, 2012? Uh, 2013. They're still... Yeah. Yeah, they're they're about halfway through their the fundraising round in order to to be able to launch the vessel, and I think they're still looking for they're still looking for investors, key investors, to make that happen. They're um, they're well into it though. Um, they're they're I was surprised in discussions with Max this weekend. His name's Max Marty uh, right. about the progress of the, of that fundraising, and um, I'm not sure when the the timeline was for actually having a vessel on sea. There there could be some confusion about what. The Seasetting Institute, the nonprofit, is doing and what Blue Sea is doing, but uh, they're still they're still well in and they are um, still raising money. So I think I think they're going to make it. It just depends on uh, some some key investors. I think coming off of that last mile because it's going to take many many millions to get this thing uh, on the sea. Mm. Right. Well, I'll, I'll just exactly. I'll just yeah. The website is voiceandexit.com, and mm-hmm. do you want to just clarify for, for people who perhaps haven't heard that term? Competitive governance. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the idea of competitive governance is uh, is as follows: every every jurisdiction on Earth, uh, pretty much has, if it's on land, has a set of rules associated with it. Some of those rules are good, and some of those rules are bad. And increasingly, people are looking to vote with your feet, just as you put it, uh, to other jurisdictions. So the idea sure. of competitive governance is: if I can create better rules, I can attract more people to my shores. Now, of course, since all of the the world is covered in rule sets of various sorts, that's the reason some people are returning to the sea. Uh, some people are turning to uh, other mechanisms for tr- for trying to compete with rule sets on land. Uh, but the the basic idea, it, and we had another speaker, Michael Strong, who's dis- who discussed the free cities concept uh, and or startup cities, <clears throat> and the idea behind startup cities is um, going to one of the poorest uh, places on earth, people who desperately need a change in the rules because they have been, theirs have been corrupted and so on, and introduce proven good rule sets. Uh, for example, uh, English common law, which you know took root in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is now the richest place on earth. And they had very, uh, very few regulations and restrictions that prevented businesses from flourishing there in Hong Kong. 
So the idea behind startup cities for Michael is to make a make these make these rule sets available in small you know uh, areas of land in the poorest parts of the world, and these poor places are very keen to try something else. And so he may yet prevail in in uh, his quest uh, to uh, to launch free cities. Uh, just as the Chinese have with their special economic zones, and Dubai has in the middle of the desert created a a, a very successful city there in Dubai. It's it's uh, it's really uh, so that was a definitely a major theme of Voice and Exit. Well, I want to I want to just say that the the competitive governance theme and the charter charter city idea is I just think a, a wonderfully wonderful idea and revolutionary. Charter cities have a lot to offer. And I will say that here in the United States, the idea is catching on too. That uh, in, De- in Detroit, Belle Isle, there's a major movement to turn that into a, a, a territory or a Commonwealth like Puerto Rico. In Maine, I'm aware of there being Washington County, a county that, that people have an idea uh, they would like to make that a charter city area. But we're going to discuss this more. We, we've got to go to the bottom of the hour break. Uh, stay with us. This is the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. This is the Stateless Man, and you're listening to Fergus Hodgson and Rachel Mills. That's rachelmills.com. She Hello. is a, a fellow podcaster, <laughs> and it is the Full Frontal Liberty Podcast. That's the name of it so far. <laughs> I decided to change it. It's pretty intense. So, <laughs> and and she yeah she's been joining me for the last uh, hour and a half now, and we we are in the final half hour. We've got Max Borders, uh, editor of the Freeman, and one of the uh, co-founders or organizers of the Voice and Exit Conference, which is just www.voiceandexit.com, and he had a whole bunch of speakers about what they call. Sharing innovations in social entrepreneurship and radical community, advocating non-coercive means of making social change. Now, Max, one of your speakers, I see his Mary Ruad, who I met at the Liberty Forum a few years back. What did she speak on, if you don't mind me asking? Not at all. She did a great talk on the uh, <clears throat> idea that we can reduce regulation in order to increase prosperity world- worldwide, but particularly in the United States. And mm-hmm. I think this is a I know this is a, a a broadcast that appeals to the expatriate community around the world, and many right. of them are expats because they're trying to flee onerous regulations. And sure. what her what her what her pitch was, <clears throat> and I think it's I think it's a very strong one, is that uh, re- reducing re- regulations, particularly those who have been captured by special interests uh, for the benefit of a few special interests, that that alone can increase global prosperity. She's right. Okay, but did she give any creative ways to achieve that? Uh, well, um, I, it was more an appeal. Uh, she gave examples, for example, from uh, the Institute of Justice, Institute for Justice here in the U.S. Uh, they agree. And they protect yeah. people who are trying to do very, very simple micro-entrepreneurial ventures like hair braiding and things like that, where you yeah. have onerous licensure requirements and things like that or that are basically barriers to entry for entrepreneurs. She wants, you know, she gave those as good examples of things to set aside. But um, I, th- I think <clears throat> given that the talks were all meant to, um, they were all short talks, and they were meant to expose people to an issue in a way that 
perhaps they hadn't been exposed to it before. That, I think that was the point. If I could, if I could have Mary do another one, it would be okay. How do we break the lock of special interest on those regulations? Because that's what's protecting them, and that's a very difficult thing. I think part of what she's trying to do with her talk was appeal to people's sympathies and treat regulations as a class, so that uh, we become increasingly more hostile to regulations because of the devastating effects on the poor. I don't think most people are aware that the poor are uh, marginalized due to regulations. It does, it does more to marginalize uh, would-be micro-entrepreneurs than it does to help consumers. And I think that's something that she just wanted to start from square one on that, on that message. Yeah, too many people see regulations as consumer protection rather than barriers to entry and means to economic independence. Mary Ruart was in my second calendar, actually. Are you serious? She was in the Ladies of Liberty calendar? She was. Back in what? What year was that? Uh, That would have been 2004. Whoa. (laughs) She's about 60 or something now. She's she's up there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, she's she's very active, very bright. I think she's working on a book right now, too, so that folks should look out for that. It's about time. Healing Our World, I think she came out with in the 90s, and it's a it's a fantastic book. So look for another one from her. Yeah, okay. We were just, just, just during the break, Rachel and I were discussing about the Blue Seed idea, which is this seasteading-type venture, a cruise ship off the, off the coast of California. And I was saying that I think that, Yes, there's there's value in that people could actually live on that boat and pay rent, but there's also just enormous educational value that when you see, obviously, in, um, people who take initiative, these entrepreneurs who are forced to live on the sea, doesn't that just isn't that give a lesson as to what is going on with uh, barriers to migration? Yeah, it does. I mean, the thing is, I've always wondered this, and I had Max here for the weekend, and we got to hang out quite a bit. And I didn't mm. to ask him this, but one of the things I've always wondered about Blue Seed is, look, if if your uh, government started to suggest that we're going to hand out a bunch of H-1B visas, which is the, the U.S. visa that allows uh, foreigners to come in and conduct business here uh, on a long-term basis, sure. uh, would you would you be happy about that? And, of course, from a business perspective, he, he wouldn't be because he's trying to create an arbitrage opportunity based on the fact that the that the regulatory environment is so bad, but I'm sure what Max would say is that he's an idealist and he would rather not have to to conduct this to create this sort of business because the the legal environment is so bad for the next Sergey Brin or the next yeah. uh, uh, Peter to come in and create value in the United States. Sure, but that that seems unlikely to me because, firstly, even if they did make it relatively easier. Many people like me can't stand dealing with any sort of immigration authority. I find it just so uh, distasteful, and I you know, that that makes me resistant to like it, just any interaction I can get away from. Uh, I would take. So, for example, if I'm if I'm looking to go to Chile, I've got to go in and send them you know about a dozen different bits of paperwork, and then go on for a meeting, and that just drives me insane. It's such a waste of time, and I have to I have to travel to a city to see them. If you can just go directly to a private organization or private uh, housing complex that doesn't that requires maybe one form or one application that seems like very hard to compete with from a government standpoint. But actually, we had an, a question, too, about your name, Max. I know many libertarians change their name, but Max Borders, it's, it's out there. Is that your original name? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, my mother and father gave me that name. And uh, it's not a it's not a kooky, crazy libertarian name. So uh, 
I'm happy to stick stick with it. Gotcha, gotcha. And yeah, so let, I'm going to follow these videos and, and look to post them on the Stateless Man site. One thing I wanted to touch upon briefly is your book, which I have been reading. I think I'm maybe in the fourth or fifth chapter right now, uh, the digital version of it. And it's called Super Wealth. And I, I've, I think I posted a link to that in the, in the Stateless Man update as well. But your, your key point is that why we should worry, le- we should worry less about the gap between rich and poor. Do you want to just give us a, a brief update? We've got about five minutes on that topic. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a, a, a book with multiple chapters. And so in answering the question why we should stop worrying about the gap between rich and poor, I sort of take each chapter as an opportunity to slice that in a different way. But ultimately, so I make a, a various points, which I, can, which I can make quickly and hopefully sure. entice some of your listeners to, to buy it. So one of the things we have to do <clears throat> is realize that in the, in the great swath of human history over the last 100 years, we have become tremendously more prosperous thanks to, uh, thanks to relatively free markets. So where there are relatively free markets, we have seen in the last 104 years, and I use the, the 104 years because that's how old my great-grandmother was when she died. And so I opened the book with sort of the, sort of the story of her life, the beginning of her life in a relatively agrarian United States to a fantastically wealthy state of affairs when she died in 2006. To move right. on, to discuss uh, entrepreneurs in the book who have made the world a better place, people like Chris Rufer in California, who um, whose Morningstar company creates tremendous value for people. He has a management philosophy where they have no bosses at his organization. And he's one of the fastest-growing uh, agribusinesses uh, in the tomato space right now in the country. I, I think he is the biggest, and he is the fastest growing, no doubt. Uh, he's a private company, so we, we don't have information on, on what he actually does, as you would with a publicly traded company, but a fantastic individual and value creator. So I, I write a chapter sort of in celebration of him. I go on to talk about, to contrast, people like uh, Chris and people like uh, Mike Ripka of Torchy's Tacos, who started off in a little... He started off in a little uh, truck uh, and uh, contrast those with people who are rent-seekers. Rent-seekers is the economic term for someone who basically uh, uh, goes to the brothels of, uh, of world capitals in, in order to, to transfer money into their own coffers, either through regulation, like we talked about before, or uh, through other means. They're not really value creators. They just know how to, 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 get, to get money into their own coffers uh, through clever political means. And this is not creating value. They might make a profit on paper, but they're not uh, creating social value uh, for themselves and their customers. Um, and going and on and on, and I talk. And so, and then I get into the, the whole issue of the wealth gap, and I explain why wealth inequality is a natural feature of uh, a, an economic system that that yields prosperity right. for, for nearly all we, people. Yeah, we're gonna have to uh, cut it there because we're coming up with the next break, but. Just the, the website is superwealthbook.com, and I have been reading this book, and he tells, Max tells a bit of his, his background story, but I, I, I hope to get you back on either to discuss this or to expand more upon this voice and exit, so uh, thanks for coming on the show, Max, okay? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Right on, Mike. This is The State Man on the, on the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to The Stateless Man, and I'm glad to have the last segment to chat with Rachel Mills about what work she's doing. She's now back in North Carolina. We were just discussing there about her podcast, 
We've got a bunch of different news stories to digest. And uh, one of them, well, let me just get from her what your podcast is about, or you're still, you're still feeling that out. I'm still feeling it out. Lately, I've been uh, on a kick about prison labor. But what, that, what, what, prison labor? I yeah, don't get it. prison labor. Not, not just chain gangs. Someone scoffed at me and said, oh, chain gangs is not a new thing. No one's upset about that. Sure. I'm, I'm interested in the issue of prison labor, um, asking two questions. Are people making a profit from imprisonment, from incarcerating of other people? people make a pro- yeah, of course. They don't do it for nothing. Uh, obviously, the, the private prisons get a, a, a per capita like they 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 get like forty thousand a year per per prisoner. Mm. There's that, but are they actually using uh, slave labor to make a profit? That's that's one issue. And then the other, you know, related corollary is it therefore incentivizing incarceration? Are more people being right. thrown in prison that don't belong there because of the profit motive? And yeah. and this is concerning to me because the the more I look into it, the more it appears just exactly that. The U.S. here where we're broadcasting from just has an enormous prison population. Yes, Almost we have five percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of the world. Twenty five percent of the prisoners. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of them are nonviolent drug offenders. And if you're someone like me who is very interested in ending the drug war, you have to wonder is. Is this a factor that we need to deal with before we have any hope of success? Well, I think it's one of the, the strongest cases you can make that we are just, one, destroying people's lives. Yes. That they're spending many years behind bars and unsavory conditions. And two, mm-hmm. it's extremely expensive. Yeah. If, if about almost 1% of people in the United States are in prison, I'm guessing it's about around 2 million people. That's, yeah, something like that. That's the state of Delaware or something, but more than the state of Delaware in prison. And we're a free country. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. see, I see you got a laugh to keep from crying. I, I know. Yeah. And I'm just looking here at the data. U.S. says, yeah, number one, Russia is second. So the U.S. beats Russia, China, a whole bunch of other countries. Where's yes. New Zealand? And where's Canada? They're way down there too. But way down there. basically, New Zealand has 160 people per 100,000 people in prison and the U.S. has 700. So. Yeah. And it, around five, five times the rate. I, I think I need five to, times. Yeah. I, <laughs> I need to clarify that this is not some soft-hearted human rights things with me with, you know, oh, murderers are not getting good enough food in prison or they're being forced to work. No, it's, it's, with me, it's, it's an economic concern and it's a concern for personal liberty. Is, is this, I mean, for example, Lockheed Martin, um, uses prisoners to build Patriot missiles. Did you know that? They, they contract with, I did not know that. with Unicor. You're informing me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm full of information. Sorry. No, but this is concerning because if you look at the Unicor website, they, they boast all of these skills that they're able to provide to places like Lockheed Martin that, that mm. have a lot of federal defense contracts. And you, you, you wonder, uh, who, who are these prisoners that are able to do electrical engineering and design and blah, blah, blah? All of these, who are these prisoners that can do that? Yeah, and, do they actually and, have people with enge- electrical engineering yeah, do, backgrounds? Do, do they do they train them in prison to do this and then just keep them there forever I because don't know. they now have a very valuable skill that they don't want to lose? Or that's crazy. Are they? That's really that's real enslavement. Are are they trapping and trapping people with like maybe IRS rules 
to to I don't even want to think about all those rules. I'm sure we've broken I'm sure I've broken half of them already. I mean yeah. All they have to do is decide that they want you in prison because they like a skill set that you have and they can there's a book called Three Felonies a Day. Right. Yeah. That basically says the average person in the United States commits Commits three three felonies felonies every every day. day. Well and and that's the problem with having too many laws that people are can't possibly know about is if the government decides, it but who who could possibly you. read? I think there's something like 160, 170,000 pages of regulations in the federal government. Is oh, it's more, more it's than that, monumental. Yeah, so I mean, even if you sat down and read them, you couldn't understand them anyway. So what's the point? Th- yeah. th- there is a point. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, what yeah. to control you? I mean, yeah. There, the the point is, who whoever the government wants to imprison, in theory, and this is this is sure. a crazy conspiracy theorist in me talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> If yeah, they want yeah. you, they can get you, and that's scary. <laughs> sure, sure. So, so there, there should be tight, tight, tight controls on the profit that is made from imprisoning people. That's it's a very bad dynamic, and right. it it might not be strong enough right now for them to say target my husband and go after him. Mm. But if if we don't keep an eye on this, you know, we we're going to lose what little freedoms we have left very quickly. Sure. Well, very the, literally. The, the, I think the challenge you're raising is that in, in this scenario, in a, an extremely regulated scenario, everyone has some dirt on them, basically, yeah. that it, it becomes very arbitrary and that people in political power can pick and choose who they want to go after, mm-hmm. including people who are just regular people. But let's not, let's not, let's not end on a downer. So, <laughs> so, okay. So Rachel actually posted a, a news story or not a new story, I guess. Just, just an article. Just not an article, which I saw earlier. I didn't write it, but I posted it. Yeah, she posted it. Yeah. But it's a tw- we're going to digest this one, and I'm going to post it on the Stateless Man page, too. It's it's on Successify blog, which I'm not yet so familiar with. But the title is 20 th- 22 Things Happy People Do Differently. And you read through all 22 of these? I did. Did any I stick did. out to you? And, and uh, on a good day, I I do most of those. Oh really? Let's on, go. On a bad day, I don't. But... I'm gonna I'm gonna test you. Okay. <laughs> That's so it's quite related. Quite simple. Happy people have good habits that enhance their lives. They do things differently. Ask any happy person, and they will tell you that they dot 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 one don't hold grudges. That's a good one, because it allows somebody into your mental space in a negative way, and it's not worth it. Hmm. Not worth it. Treat everyone with kindness. Everyone. <laughs> I feel this is a pretty tough one. Not Barack Obama, but everyone else. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I have a hard time when the police pull me over for speeding or something. I'm going, oh, oh you got to be careful. Yeah, they, they can, they can, they can make your day go very, very badly. You, you have to be nice to even yeah. the police, especially the police. I'm afraid so. This this article does not give a a link for referencing or documentation for this, but they said, did you know that it has been scientifically proven that being kind makes you happier? You know what else is scientifically proven? What? No, I don't. <laughs> Plenty of things. <laughs> that if you say that something is scientifically proven, that people will pay more attention. That's scientifically proven. Really? Well, probably <laughs> I would I would believe that. Okay, so number three. Number three. So, so what are we? Don't hold grudges. Treat everyone with kindness. See problems as challenges. This is a very good one, actually. Yeah. The word problem is never part of a happy person's vocabulary. It's a challenge. Yeah. A problem is viewed as a drawback or struggle, while a challenge is viewed as something positive, like an opportunity, a task, or a dare. Whenever you face an obstacle, try looking at it 
as a challenge. You have a comment on that one? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it flips the, the motivation and it turns a, a negative into a positive in, in a way. So, that, yeah, that's a good one. Right. If you just whine about your problems rather than... Um, rather than just basically, I don't want to spend time discussing all the problems I have. I want to spend time get, overcoming or getting to things that I want to get to. Yeah. We can whine about all our problems. We've all got plenty of them. Okay, so express day number four. Express, when I, I don't think we're going to get through all 22 of these. But, I don't think so. Okay, express gratitude <laughs> for what they already have. That's good. That's something interesting. Yeah, count your blessings. Because, yeah, many of us might get frustrated by the reality is that just being able to be here and enjoy doing this show, I feel like we are we are fortunate people that yeah. I grew up in a I think a great family and they've given me many opportunities. So in many regards, it could always be worse. That's another way. Of it could be worse. We're it. not in the jails of Venezuela yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there, folks. Yeah, so, okay, so dream big. People who get into the habit of dreaming bigger are more likely to accomplish their goals yeah. than those who don't. And even if you don't quite reach the lofty goal that you set for yourself, you've... You, you, you don't, yeah, if you shoot you, for the stars, you, you, yeah, you, you probably get the moon. Yeah, the or the treetops or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is just... This is some great ideas. Okay, so dream big. Don't sweat the small stuff. Did you read that book? That, don't sweat the, sweat the small stuff? It was no, big, I didn't. Big bestseller years ago. I got... I had one of those. Okay, speak well of others. This is hard because I, sometimes I want to criticize. Yeah, ignore people. that one. <laughs> no, I, I like that quote from Steel Magnolias. If you if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. So I ignore that one. That's a challenge because I have a book which I'm going to be reviewing this week. Oh yeah. And it is terrible. I hate to say that. You're gonna you're gonna give a negative review. A very you negative might review. alienate the author. I probably will. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah, because I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna like, basically. This book, the actual ideas in it are great. Mm-hmm. And it I, is not well written? It is not well written. Mm. Yeah. It is the book which I'm going to write about, and I actually had the author has passed away, but the organization that promote, the people who promote it, they were on the show a couple months back discussing the book, and when I just read a chapter or two, but it is just, it is really heavy. Wait, so people are promoting it, so it wasn't like self published? It was self published, basically. Aha. Uh-huh. But his followers. I don't want to use the word that you, that is coming. <laughs> I don't want to say it, but there's, there's there's a little bit of that tendency there. Anyway, so this book is Taming the Violence of Faith, and it is actually about a great idea of finding win-win solutions and overcoming this faith that in order for me to win, you have to lose or vice versa. This assumption that many people have just in their minds so that's, deeply that's ingrained. That's a great topic. It is, and but I can just kind of finish this book. It's just painful. And oh, I'm, no. I'm, I'm letting it go. I've got two thirds, two thirds of the way through. And I'm just going, just get through. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So that's a challenge I'm dealing with right now. And I don't know because I know that's true that negative comments of others aren't, you know, you gotta, you gotta wonder what, what good is coming out of this. I'm not really sure. In this case, I just want to say to people that basically the ideas in the book are great. I think mm-hmm. it's, but the repetition, and the I'm an editor. The writing style is terrible, so I I'm going to try and weave that into the yeah, a clarifying review. But it's a challenge. So okay, never make excuses. Yeah, that that yeah. <laughs> okay. Always accept responsibility, even sometimes when it's not entirely your fault. Just err on the side of accepting responsibilities because it, it, here's here's one thing. If 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 yeah. you just say 
I'm doing my best, I'm doing my best. Well, then what you're telegraphing is you can't do any better. Sure, sure. Well, happy people, the quote, happy people don't make excuses or blame others. But we are, we are almost out of time, so I want to say firstly thank you to Rachel Mills for the show. Thank you. This, this was a treat and an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great, Rachel. And so her, her website, rachelmills.com. Otherwise, people, stay in touch with the show on the Facebook page, The Stateless Man or thestatelessman.com. We've got an email update. Can I come back? Maybe. Just... <laughs> Please. <laughs> but otherwise, come back next week. Uh, the Stateless Man, it's uh, 12 to 2 Mondays each week, and I'm pleased to be broadcasting with the Overseas Radio Network. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network.